This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to IT Visionaries. We're talking with the chief technology officer of a company called Doco. I told you when we took a break that I wanted to learn more about medical, more about infrastructure, more about the critical physical things that impact our world. Hawk Newton, we're happy to have you. Hawk, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. For our audience, if you're, they're not aware, can you please tell us what is Doco and what does it do? Certainly. Uh, Doco is a technology first provider of medical transportation and home health services. Um, we're, we're moving into the RPM, which is the remote patient monitoring space. You know, I guess we're about seven ish years old now, went public last year. I've been with the company for, it'll, I think it'll be six years in May. Um, it has been, it has been quite a wild ride. I think I understand what you're saying, but if you could frame it up for us so our audience can understand, if they're not familiar with the medical world, you said you're talking about uh, medical transport, medical, give us an example of like what your patients are like and why they need this kind of service and why it's better than I guess what we're currently faced with. So we started out as basically an ambulance company um, offering uh, different levels of service. The first market that we went into was California and LA. Um, We did that specifically because we knew that if you can do it in California, you can do it anywhere. Lots There's a of, lot of regulatory concerns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot going on there. So as a technology first company, the plan was to be able to bring a whole different level of patient experience from a patient facing perspective and be able to integrate much more deeply with hospital systems, EMRs, EHRs, and, and have the ability to, to really provide a, a technology first experience. Um, as an example, uh, when you request medical transportation through any one of our integrations or through our, our web facing portal, we're actually able to give you a estimated time of arrival that, that, that is accurate like 98% of the time, depending upon the organization and market. It's a very powerful experience. The previous model, I like to say, is sort of like calling a cab when you would call a, you'd call a taxi and, and gee, I sure hope they get here and you'd call them over and over and they'd tell you that we'll be, we'll be there eventually. You have the ability to actually receive a, a current ETA as well as the location of the unit as, as it transitions throughout its life cycle. It really elevates patient care. It elevates uh, people's experiences and it gives large healthcare organizations the capability to really change the way in, in which they order and, and perform medical transportation. It's a pretty cool thing. We're in the process of rolling out a home health offering. It's a very exciting uh, offering to add to our portfolio. In addition, uh, we do a lot of work in New York City. Um, we work with New York Health and Hospitals to do a lot of street outreach. So we go out and, and we treat people that are underprivileged that normally might not receive the sort of health care that you get when you have, for example, a primary care provider. Um, and I feel like we're doing a lot of good for the community at large. And, and we're in the process of moving into remote patient management um, and you know, are, are on track to have 50,000 patients being remotely monitored by the end of the year. It's a pretty cool opportunity. I'm having a lot of fun. It's pretty insane what you're talking about because you're kind of, you know, the company is really addressing some of the problems that we hear a lot of. We all know someone who's gotten medical care, right? Some of the challenges for anyone who's ever had to get care is, of course, transportation is a part of it. Uh, Wait Mm -hmm. times, uh, personalization. So this is kind of bridging the gap to, I guess, 
the way it used to be, right? Where doctors would make house calls, they would come to you. It sounds like this is a capable, uh, making this more capable. The other thing that I'm going to rant on, which again, this is my rant, not Hawk's rant, but I'm going to rant on it is, uh, I have a bunch of friends that are actually first responders. They used to be first responders, uh, specifically with the ambulance system. Most people don't realize this, but ambulance companies are subcontracted by medical providers. So if I'm a hospital, they subcontract the ambulances. And what happened was, I'm not going to say their company name, but they got three letters in their name and they started acquiring all these ambulance providers. And basically once they had them all, they started charging exorbitant rates. So now hospitals didn't hire people and the rates weren't charged to the hospital because they said, hey, we'll do the pickups. We'll charge the patient. So for anyone who's ever had an ambulance ride and you see your bill and uh, it's not your fault. I know, <laughs> but it's it's an astronomical bill. It can be like $5,000 for transportation. It's insanity. If you need hella transport, forget it. You might as well die. Like you better off dying. <laughs> hella, hella transport can mean the hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's insanity. You know what you said you were there from the beginning. Was this like the primary reason that the business and your team and your guys like, hey, we we want to disrupt this because this is just getting out of hand because it is a, is a massive problem. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. One of the things that we're able to do because we because we're a technology first company is we're able to scale much more efficiently. Yeah, I can run the same number of trips with a fraction of dispatchers that you might need if you're using tra- a traditional ambulance computer aided dispatcher CAD. Um, and so that that that's part of the way that that we really you know bring benefit to to our customers and to our clients to the patients that we that we service. So when you're talking about some of the added layers of, you know, you're obviously from a transportation perspective, you're monitoring the vehicles, but you mentioned as the company's evolved, you've introduced new services at home. Talk about what those services maybe look like, and then what technology does it take to enable these services to be provided? Because you made a comment about how it sounds like if I have a primary care physician, they can't come visit me, but maybe uh, maybe like an RN or something like that can come to me and the, my primary care provider and the RN can work on me from my house. That's what it sounded like. I want to make sure that yep. that's, that's, how, that's how you're framing it. That's exactly it. Uh, we send out a, a provider that's capable of uh, using their time to come to your house and provide service for you. While they're there, they'll call your doctor, usually over a, some kind of telepresence mechanism, and and have a full session. We have some pretty sophisticated equipment that allows the doctor to actually uh, monitor and receive your vitals real time as the provider at your house is taking them. Um, and it's actually a, a full service uh, experience. You can basically have a house call again. It's very cool stuff. So what technology are you investing in that enables this to happen? Because this, because on one hand, you're dealing with, it's got to be real time. It's got to be live. Right. It's got to be unbelievably accurate. Anytime medical is involved, it's got to be super accurate. And then right. it's also, like you said, it's got to be privatized. It's got to <laughs> so talk about what you're investing in to make sure all these things happen concurrently. There's a third-party company that we use uh, that's, that's capable of providing us these remote monitoring mechanisms that the tech uses uh, or that the local provider, provider uses while they're in your house. And that information is brought directly to the to the doctor via that mechanism. But a, lo- a lot of the really kind of cool, cool stuff that we've done and for the proprietary stuff that is very exciting is we were able to repurpose a lot of our medical transportation software that we'd written over the past several years and use the same software to facilitate and coordinate the actual the actual routes of the providers as they perform their jobs throughout the day. So the same system that we use to dispatch medical transportation, we also use for these doc go on demand home health visits. 
it's a really cool use of an existing technology that we've invested heavily in. Give us an idea of how much better the performance can be, because if I'm you, if you know, if my local area, let's say my area, right? Because you mentioned before you're in states and specific cities, uh, some of the cities piloting these programs. I guess how long did it used to take dispatch? How many trips could they do a day, and wh- how are things right. changing? Because this all drive, in my opinion, helps to drive down the cost of healthcare. It's very cool. And I do want to clarify that the program called Doco on Demand is not a pilot. It's we're, we're fully rolling it out. Sorry, I'm sorry, super yeah. excited. <laughs> it's all good. I'm super excited about, you know, once we really nail this thing, I, I feel confident that we'll have a soup. We'll, we'll do like a Super Bowl commercial. It's going to be, you know, Doco is going to be a, a household name with regards to, to what we can do with our with our proprietary computer aided dispatch. You know, it's, it's not unusual for an ambulance company to do, you know, one or two rides per day per rig and like a 10 hour shift. A lot of that is just, there's a lot of waste in the system. A lot of facilities that need medical transportation and, and use our competitors, they have an entire bank of employees that just sit on the phone. And when medical transportation is required, they just start calling around and it can be really, really difficult to not only to, to find uh, transport, but to coordinate that transport, um, you know, to make any changes that are required as the requirements of the transport develop. And because we have uh, this is our computer aided dispatch, which is which is customer facing, um, both B two B, where the, our healthcare providers um, use our systems to coordinate transport, but also B two C, where our customers can actually see where we are, and we actually have the capability to provide a link that will show um, will show you where your grandmother is on the way home from the appointment. Because of all of these capabilities, we're able to do five or six or sometimes even more transports per shift or per 10-hour shift. And it makes a huge difference in our capability to provide service in a timely and, and cost-effective way. What you just described there was pretty cool. because And I hope people are picking up on this because for our audience members who maybe you've, you've been fortunate enough to never have to care for somebody, uh, what Hawk just said is, it's invaluable. I would say like, I, I don't know what, I don't know how to play a price tag on it because we don't have that capability right now. But like for anyone who's ever had to care for, or know someone in your family that, you know, they need medical assistance of some sort, you know, that they're like, say, say for example, a senior, like I had, we've had grandparents that, you know, for me to know that they got from A to B safely is extremely valuable to me. Right. Right. Emotionally, I guess. And so you're absolutely right. Like in the, in first response, they're, is no, it's not, it's not over, right? Like, and, and you just described what it would take possibly to make a change or to make an update. Yeah. It's just a bunch of phone calls. It's literally a bunch of phone tag that, that's uh, it, it's pretty insane when you think about what we're doing here, because like you said, se- this is medical care. So seconds are critical. It's really cool. And we have the sort of level of notification that you expect from a, from a technology first company. We uh, have the ability to send out SMS or, you know, if you wanted email, um, when the, when the unit goes in route to location or as it, as it transitions, um, throughout its life cycle. Of course, as I mentioned, we also have the ability to provide that link that shows you on a map precisely where the unit is and what the current ETA is. So it's very cool. Not, Not only that, but we also have the ability to push that information yeah. into our healthcare partner systems. Um, and so they can do cool things like bed management, for example. They know that, that, uh, that, the, that the patient in a given room isn't picked up at a given time because we picked them up and we informed their systems. That enables them to be more efficient and more um, cost effective. So one of the things that you're describing here, and I was thinking, and I want to make, I'll see if this is a use case. You know, in the movies when there's a patient coming in inbound, 
and the medical provider on the scene is, let's say, relaying information. A lot of times in the movies, and I've seen it also at an ER, unfortunately, the when they get there, they're still relaying information. It's all verbal. It's all verbal, and right. someone's going to have to put that into the EMR somewhere. So you're saying like now you're because of this these connected systems, on the go systems. You're saying like these vitals or these data points or these qualifying or you know visible observations can then be uploaded direct to the hospital systems and they're they're basically made where like I don't need as much verbal or maybe all I need is a couple clarifications and then I can get to treating. There doesn't need to be any human any human interaction uh, beyond the EMTs and the patient in order to in order for us to perform a trip. Um, at the end of the day, everything comes in digitally. Uh, our digital dispatch system automatically routes and determines when the unit should go online. And we communicate with our, with our crews entirely via an iPad. Um, every crew has an iPad and it's, it's a great system. I mean, the interesting thing for me as, as a technologist and, and as somebody that's, you know, been doing software my entire life, uh, is, is that this problem was so hard to solve. Yeah. <laughs> there are incredible, incredible logistic complications in medical transportation. Uh, and it's been really fulfilling. It's been a very cool job to be doing this. Um, I took the CTO gig about a year ago. As I mentioned previous to that, I was the uh, chief software architect. And we have invested an, an amazing amount of time and money in figuring this out. And it's so cool to see it work. Give us an idea of some of the challenges because every person that I know that's been in, let's say, software to transform the medical field talks about some of the hurdles, some logistics, uh, some of the things that we've had heard in the past are uh, fragmented systems, antiquated systems, latencies, like uh, every data provider's payloads are different. So it's like you're constantly having to, I guess, reconfigure. That was just some of the complaints I've heard. Give us an idea. You mentioned it was super hard or much harder than you expected. What was super hard about it? At the end of the day, um, medical transportation is complicated. There's a lot that has to go into it. I mean, there are conversations with, with regards to um, the level of care you're looking for. I mean, generally speaking, you're wow. looking at BLS, which is basic, basic life support, ALS, advanced life support, CCT, critical care transport. Um, and then there are various uh, details that go into that. If, if the patient is bariatric, you need a special, need a special kind of gurney. Mm. Um, in many different cases, you need, for example, a respiratory therapist to ride along with the patient if they're on a ventilator. In different states, crews are licensed in different ways in order to handle different kinds of equipment or drugs. I mean, just the whole narcotic conversation is out of control. I mean, it is, it, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult problem to solve. It's, it's not just a matter of routing everyone from A to B. And then once you start talking about that, that itself is difficult to be able to, be able to provide a high degree of on-time compliance um, just makes the whole system hard. And as you, as you make minor adjustments to various portions of the system, other things need to be brought back into alignment. It's just a very difficult problem to understand. Uh, it's a very difficult problem to model, and it's a very difficult problem to implement. And as I said, I'm, I'm super, super proud we've done it. Yeah. Listen, if our audience heard Hawk just a moment ago when he was throwing out some acronyms, BLS, ALS, basic life support or advanced, I guess the misconception or the assumption I think most people have is that all ambulances carry the same equipment and all ambulances are staffed with the same skills. Hawk has just revealed. And if you didn't know it, that is not true. So if you yeah. needed someone whose skill was further from you, or let's say on active duty in the way Hawk just described it, the dispatcher or the people who need the help have to then make another phone call. Like that's how it was done in the past. 
or is currently done when people without dog go. <laughs> it's interesting. 70% of ambulances on the road are, are performing a, a non, um, a non-emergency service. Somebody that's not ambulatory is going to a doctor's appointment. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff can be pretty straightforward. And then of course there's the stuff that isn't there's there, yeah. that there are, are times in which we absolutely dispatch emergency calls. It's definitely interesting. I mean, there's a lot that goes into a system that, that absolutely has to be available and can't fail. And then, of course, systems do fail. So you have to prepare for all, all eventualities. So one of the things you mentioned just a moment ago, the different equipment and the, um, the fact that it has to be accurate. So if you are the software layer to other service providers, I guess, what or how do you ensure that, I guess, equipment and staff is tagged appropriately? Like, I mean, you had to develop systems for all of this. Oh, yeah. Most of our systems are, are proprietary. It has taken a long time. It's taken, as I mentioned, quite some time to model, quite some time to understand. And then even just from an operational perspective, the amount of work that goes into ensuring that, you know, all of our providers are properly, properly categorized, all of their licenses are captured, all of the units, all of the actual rigs are, are, are up to date. Uh, they have the right equipment. It's an incredible task. And we put a lot of time into a system that can be operated efficiently, that, that makes sense and that makes sense for us. What are you most proud of, I guess, with you and your teams? Uh, a lot of times people talk about, you know, problems and challenges that they, they just uh -huh. couldn't believe and they figured out a solution for. Give us an idea of some of the things that you guys encountered where you're like, man, I don't know. And then this was badass. We figured it out. There's a lot that I'm proud of. I think probably one of the coolest moments was the first time that we turned on uh, our schedule service. We are, um, you know, based on a suite of microservices. And the first time that we actually created the service that's responsible for everything temporal, um, that understands dates and understands times, was a schedule service. And it's also the thing that is able to provide an ETA based upon where it either knows units are right now or where they are projected to be in the future, depending upon the time you're requesting. And the first time we turned that on was super cool because before that, dispatch was still a very manual process. It was still something that 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 primarily was happening in people's heads and there was a lot of spreadsheets um, and a lot of notes on paper. And then we turned it on. And the first time we turned it on, I remember this, there was a, there was a unit that, that had, a, had a standing call, right? Generally speaking, it always went and picked up the same person at the same place every day. And we turned it on. And the idea was the schedule service was going to notify the iPad that it was time for them to go and route. Well, the crew knew where they were going. So they were, they were already heading to the right place. Well, the schedule service was constantly recalculating where they were and where they needed to be. And, and they were slightly ahead of where they needed to be. So the trip never actually dropped on their iPads. Mm. <laughs> they never actually received a notification because they were basically just in front of their scheduled location. And nobody could figure it out. We're all scratching our heads. They get there, they stop, and the, and the trip activates. And we're like, oh, <laughs> okay, we should probably think about how this works. So, you know, it's, it's complications like that that, that, uh, that that are really interesting. And, and I think that was definitely one of my proudest moments. When, when the, fir the first time we had the trip auto dispatch. Yeah, that's one of those, those, those ones where I think to a non-engineer, you hear them because en engineers and non-engineers always are in this forever kind of like joke. It's like a joke only engineers know, which is like what's simple on the outside. It can be quite complicated. So like I remember meeting some companies that are like, we're not building a calendaring system because what you just said, time is just so hard to deal with. Like who's time zone? Yeah, time, much time math. Time math sucks. <laughs> time math is so hard. <laughs> they were talking about like, dude, I don't want to do it. Uh, no, 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 no. It's like, it's like time zones. Don't get anywhere near time zones <laughs> under any circumstances. You know, there's, there's a, I, I think it's in Australia. There's a time zone that has a half an hour daylight savings. Half an hour? 
Yeah, half an hour. Just, you know, yeah, why not? Let's I think, make it more complicated. I've seen that. In yeah. in, I think in India they do that too. It's like yeah. half hours. Like, but yeah, anyways, we, we digress. So for yourself, you know, one of the things that we, when we took a break, we talked about like, hey, we wanted to get more people into software or technology services that are really going to help humanity. And that's kind of what me and Jana and our team at Mission was like, we want to put more guests on that are doing this kind of stuff. Not to say there's nothing wrong with the chat apps. You can make all the chat apps you want. That's that's okay. But I love the fact that we're doing things that can actually change people's lives for the better. For yourself, how do you, I guess, because this is a problem every technologist has, which is recruiting, getting talent. Because like straight up, when you're a peer, when when I found out about Dago, I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. In uh, you know, it's just not as flashy or in my face as like other technology companies. How do you go about acquiring talent, getting getting people? Do you see like a wave of engineers that want to do more? I don't want to say it's not the other stuff's not meaningful, but this seems to have more impact on life. Like, yeah, give us an idea how you go about getting the talent. I think about it like code. What matters, right? What the, the software that you write should should make an impact, and it should really elevate people's standard of living and elevate, you know, uh, the, the world in a meaningful way. And I feel like we're doing a pretty good job of that around here. Uh, what we're doing is, is important. Like you said, I mean, I don't mean to throw rocks at chat apps. They're great. I use them all the time. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I don't feel like, like the world is a measure is immeasurably better because Microsoft teams is on, is on the scene. I feel like the work that we do really makes a difference um, to people's to people's health to to their to their their life and their longevity. So it's it is a very exciting place to work. Um, one thing that's interesting about us is that we are a work from work organization. Uh, some people think that's great, and uh, some people don't. But ultimately, because our providers uh, show up every day, our medical providers, we do too. Uh, we were in the office mm. um, through the vast majority of the pandemic during, you know, here, here in mid here in Midtown in Manhattan. And it was it was wild. But we we got it done. We were here. We provided uh, the support that that the city needed. We we're actually the largest single activation um, when FEMA activated New York during the surge or New York transportation, I should say. And uh, and it was amazing to be part of this. It was it was absolutely you know, it was pretty awe inspiring. And so I take a lot of pride in, in being part of this organization and, you know, writing software that really makes a difference. You know, I was thinking about this. Let's say this picks up and we want it to pick up because, like I said, I went on my rant. Again, I, I will speak for myself. This was not Hawk's rant about the cost of medical transport, right? It's pretty insane, right? So let's assume this picks up and gets to more different places. You know, one of the things that you kind of hint on, on is that this technology is it has one, in my opinion, in my mind, it has one limiting factor um, in that when you expand your network and your your provider, like let's assume you go national, right? But there's going to be some areas that don't have good transportation connectivity. How do you, I guess, or how will, it, will you solve for that? Because like, let's imagine you get to South Dakota. There's going to be a lot of more dead spots there. <laughs> like that's a fact. Right. <laughs> we have multiple, uh, multiple radios on every rig. So mm -hmm. if- for example, there's not great coverage um, for one provider. We'll use a different cellular provider. I imagine that were we to end up in a place where there regularly wasn't great coverage, we'd probably invest in maybe some kind of satellite-based system. Gotcha. Um, it, it isn't. It isn't generally a huge problem today. Right. Uh, of course. Of course, we have backup systems in place. You know, in the event that there's literally no connectivity, uh, you know, every unit still has a radio, and so if we have to, we use those. But not as a matter of course. 
Yeah, the uh, sounds like you've thought of a lot of different things. Like you've built oh, yeah. some redundancies. Yeah, I mean, this, my, my my job is to be paranoid. <laughs> I mean, my job is to think about you know all the ways in which systems can fail. Yeah, um, you know we're we're highly available. We're multi regional. I mean, you know we we do a lot to make sure that whatever happens, we can still provide excellent patient care. Oh yeah, I guess that's a great question. How often? Yeah, like you're because you're relaying you're relaying medical data between. Uh, point of point of service as well as the the hospital medical center where it's going to go to you're relaying data from the vehicle to your system so that you can understand where all the vehicles are uh give us an idea of like this sounds like a very complex architecture so i'm i'm assuming are you relying are you fully cloud are you relying some data center work because because then there's people that are like it's got it's got to move on private line if (laughs) yeah yeah no we're not we're not there we we run everything in a cloud gotcha um you know, at the end of the day, I kind of feel like I think it was in the 70s and 80s when you bought a reporting package from IBM, they would deliver it on a mainframe <laughs> and they would they would they would they'd hook it up in your in your in your building. And I kind of feel like these days running your own data center is sort of the same thing. Yeah. It, it like it's almost laughable to install a mainframe because you bought a reporting package. I feel like it's almost laughable to install, you know, uh, a data center because you want to we want to run some software. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, we, we take advantage of of, uh, of a lot of highly available features um, We're highly available or we're elastically scalable. Um, you know, we've got redundant systems everywhere. Uh, we have multiple ways in which we can collect location information from the unit, depending upon its connectivity and the capabilities uh, and health the systems on board. Um, you know, there's a lot that goes into it with regards to how we collect the data, how we massage the data, um, how we provide visibility into that data. Of course, we have a, a pretty large, you know, uh, uh, BI installation as a data-driven company, as a technology-first company. So, I mean, there there is uh, there's a lot. That little answer right there reminded me when took me right back to when we talked about, hey, oh, it's just like building Uber. Turns out it's not because <laughs> you just hinted, no. you just hit it, you just hit the like if your car, if you're a, if I order a car to come pick me up to take me to the airport and it goes through some dead spots and I can't see it for a little bit, not a big deal. It's just not a big deal. <laughs> like, right. like what you're talking about, it becomes a big deal real fast. It really does. It really does. Uh, it, it becomes it becomes a really big deal. And we spend a lot of time, uh, energy and resources into ensuring that we're able to provide you know, excellent patient care, regardless of, of what happens along the way with our systems. That is awesome. Well, Hawk, it was awesome having you on the show. One of the things we say for the end is always some questions to get to know you a little bit personally, because we always want to know about the person behind the architecture. And, you know, it's a couple quick hitter, a couple quick questions just to get so I get the idea of who you are outside of work. You ready? Sure. All right. Your name, Hawk. Is that a nickname or is it short for something? It is my given name. Uh, it's my middle name. Uh, it was given to me by my parents. Uh, I was born just north of Austin, Texas, in a little cabin, and there was there they were both, of course, hippies. I think they both are still hippies. Uh, and uh, and yeah, there was a big hawk that hung out outside while my mother was uh, was giving birth to me. So that's how I got the name Hawk. Of the animals to be named after. Pretty sweet one. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I, I like it, man. I kind of won the lane. I won the name lottery. Yeah, you could have been worm. Like if a worm crawled by, like that, that would have sucked. The jokes are there, and many of them are off color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. For yourself, you mentioned you grew up north of or born and raised. Uh, sounds like north of Austin. You said your parents are kind mm-hmm. of hippie-ish. How did you get into tech? My mother's professor uh, gave her his old computer, and I think this was in like '83. 
I got a hold of it. It was just, just I think it was an ITI-4A99. It was like a little keyboard-looking thing that plugs into the television. And it came with this book that said BASIC. Uh, and at the time, I couldn't read. And so I figured BASIC just meant it was beginners. Yeah. Turns out there's a, there's a whole computer language called BASIC. And so I taught myself how to write, you know, how to noodle around BASIC before I could read. And uh, it's been kind of a wild ride ever since. I'm, uh, I'm totally self-taught. Uh, I've worked for uh, a lot of interesting companies and met a lot of really cool people along the way. Um, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. When you say you're self-taught what, uh, for our audience, what does that mean? It means that uh, I've never been to a computer class. Uh, <laughs> actually, that's not true. I, I went to one and then I ended up teaching it. You know, I, I've just absolutely, um, you know, taught myself all the skills that I've got at this point. I keep saying it's been a lot of fun because it has. <laughs> it's okay. You're an engineer's engineer. Listen, for yourself, if I were if I were listening and thinking to myself, hey, I want to learn a new skill. I want to learn something I don't understand. Where do you go, I guess, for resources? Do you rely on peer networks? Do you rely on uh, YouTube? Where do you go first? It really depends on the, on the skill I'm trying to learn. I mean, obviously, if I'm trying to figure out how to, I don't know, uh, change out a faucet, YouTube's a great place to go. <laughs> um, with regards to knowledge workers uh, and, and, you know, sort of those skills in general, I always feel that the most important thing is to have a project. To go out and just sort of try to learn something for the sake of learning it is great. And I think it's a noble endeavor, but it's difficult to, to tell what you need to learn. So oftentimes you go breadth first instead of depth first. And breadth first can be very overwhelming. Yeah. And oftentimes uh, I, I, I find people don't generally work out of books anymore <laughs> like they used to. Right. But I would always buy a book that was sort of a beginner's book, sort of a get started book, and then the thickest, gnarliest reference <laughs> book you could find. And those two things, right? You have enough to get started and get kind of dangerous. And then you got something that'll actually, you can actually dive deep on when you have a real question that, that, uh, that needs answering. You know, that is very uh, tangible advice that I've not heard anyone ever say before. The two very tangible pieces of advice, right? You like saying, give it to beginners and go deep. Yeah. You want to have the support there. You don't have, you don't have enough beginner information to get you started, but then have the support whenever, whenever you are truly, truly outside of your depth and you're very confused <laughs> and nothing is making sense. And the beginner book isn't doing it for you. There you go. And listen, you, you hit the, what my dad advice is to all my kids and my advice is to any young entrepreneur and anyone who ever asked me for advice, which is not that many, but it's like, basically <laughs> you have to do the thing. To, to learn it. Like people say, Oh, I want to learn something. It's like, I don't know. Like you got to actually, so I'm, I, I appreciate it, which now I got to ask, what was the first, I guess, project or what are some of the earlier projects? It doesn't have to be the first one where you were trying to accomplish. Cause this kind of gives us an idea of who you are. <laughs> Let's see here. One of the first projects I ever got paid for was uh, my stepfather at the time was a businessman and he, uh, he had, a, he had, he had like crazy books and this is before, you know, before QuickBooks, before anything. And um, I built a, a pretty sophisticated uh, reporting system on Lotus one, two, three, which is an early, <laughs> an early spreadsheet. Yep, yep. And, you know, really one of the interesting things about, about spreadsheets and a lot of people that, that really use spreadsheets pretty aggressively uh, don't understand is that spreadsheet it's a it's a programming platform. Oh yeah, I mean, you are absolutely writing software. Yeah. So I think there are plenty of people out there that are proficient and perhaps even highly skilled in in something like you know uh, Excel or Google Sheets, um, and they think that that software engineering is this mystical thing. And in fact, guess what, man, you're doing it. <laughs> that's what that is. <laughs> I love how you said spreadsheets. I, I tell my kids the same things, but that's a better piece of advice, which is you were tangibly taking care of the books. So you kind of got yourself a mini accounting degree, huh? <laughs> yeah, I got paid for it too. There you go. Before you go, 
We want to ask you your opinions and questions on a little bit of network health. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. I think we got a little bit of jitter. No, I'm just playing. It is time to check yourself with the network health checkup brought to us by Zayo. This is where we ask questions about network health, specifically for modern infrastructure. We know that, listen, no matter how good your applications are, if you can't deliver it, you ain't got no application. How complex is the set of network providers that you use? So we have redundant providers to all of our physical locations. Uh, and in the course of the cloud, um, you know, we, we leverage both multiple availability zones and multiple regions in order to ensure that we're, that we're capable of delivering uh, on our customers' needs. You kind of hinted at it, but it sounds, you know, that answer also service for the next ones. Like, how do you prevent single points of failure? Yeah. The thing about systems is if you're not monitoring them, then they're basically, then they basically already failed. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's very important to monitor your systems. It's very important to monitor all of your connectivity. Uh, and, and then of course, it's, it's also important to plan for those failures. In many cases, you have, have a planned outage in which, in which you need to perform some sort of maintenance activity. Uh, and then there, there are the times when, you know, a squirrel crawls into a transformer and you have a whole different kind of problem that you thought you were going to have that day. <laughs> and you also, you kind of hinted at it and you said earlier in the show with equipment, you just also have to make sure you have the equipment on location, on-prem, wherever you need connectivity to make sure you can have redundancy. Exactly. And ultimately, every system is going to fail. So you need to be prepared for that. Um, you need to make sure that you have redundant systems available, and in some cases, even redundant components, depending upon perhaps how difficult they are to source or how, or how vital they are. Uh, so uh, just plan for failure. No doubt. As the amount of data exponentially increases, how concerned are you? A little, lots of concern that the amount of data that you're going to be required to transport, that you're going to have enough capacity to transport it in the speed that it's required. Obviously, both latency and bandwidth are always conversations you have to have when you start talking about moving data around. Uh, am I concerned? I, I wouldn't say I'm overly concerned at this point, no. Yeah. How did you prevent or did you deal with your last outage? I think we had a failure of a primary, of a primary internet provider in one of our offices recently. Our firewall had been configured such that it just failed over. We see uh, those, those sorts of failovers all the time. Uh, the link that we use... Uh, or at least one of the links that we use to our to our cloud-based provider uh, uses redundant VPN connections, and they regularly uh, kill one of the VPN connections um, for operational uh, for operational purposes, or sometimes sometimes it's, it's an unplanned failure. Uh, but you know things just fail all the time, and you have to be ready for it. And then for yourself, Gradient team, how fast do they respond to network or application events? Very very quickly. As I mentioned, it is my belief that if you're not monitoring it, it's already failed. Uh, and so it's a matter of really understanding what happens in the event of failure. Um, sometimes we, we practice failures. We'll perform tabletop activities to see how we might handle various types of failures. Um, but when, when it goes wrong, we have a system that generally will alert us within about two minutes of a failure. And then I expect my engineers to be responding in between two and five minutes. Perfect. Hawk, man, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks for sharing some of the things that DocGo is working on. You know what, like I said, from the very jump, we want to more highlight on IT visionaries, companies that are trying to change, let's say society for the better. I think this is a noble endeavor. I hope it works out. To the, you, know, you said, like I said, it's already working. I hope this spreads like wildfire. It makes it significantly better for all of us if the cost of healthcare and getting to healthcare goes down. Hawk, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries, man. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.